The recommended podcast is sponsored by Libro.fm Audiobooks. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be a part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of Recommended can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code BR3. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. This is Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. In this episode, G. Willow Wilson and Zen Cho talk to us about two of their favorite unreliable narrators. G. Willow Wilson is the author of the critically acclaimed novel Aleph the Unseen, the memoir The Butterfly Mosque, and the graphic novels Cairo, Air, and Vixen. She co-created the celebrated comic book series Ms. Marvel, starring Kamala Khan, winner of the 2015 Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story, and recently debuted as writer of the Wonder Woman comics. Her new novel, The Bird King, is a fantastical journey set at the height of the Spanish Inquisition, exploring love versus power, religion versus faith, and freedom versus safety. My name is G. Willow Wilson, and The Hunters by Claire Massoud is my recommended. So The Hunters is actually a duo of novellas by the author Claire Massoud. The first one is about a woman who is looking back on her life during World War II and all of the things that she had to endure and how different the life of her son who grew up in Canada after she was relocated has turned out to be and the massive gulf that that has caused between them and the great irony that she feels in that gulf, because the reason that she brought him to Canada in the first place was so that he would not have to go through what she went through. Uh, And it's, it's a, an amazing parable about the gulf that can open up between generations unexpectedly. And uh, that one I liked, but the, the one that really stuck with me, the one that really struck me was the titular novella, The Hunter's which in many ways is kind of a a precursor, but in a much more literary, restrained, fascinating form of novels like The Girl on the Train uh, and the, the kind of gone girl, disappearing woman under mysterious circumstances genre that has become so popular in recent years. And the reason that The Hunters is something I go back to again and again is because it does several things very well. It does an unreliable narrator extremely well. It creates depth in characters who could otherwise just have been ciphers or plot devices. And there are some narrative twists that I didn't see coming, and I kind of pride myself on my ability to see narrative twists coming. (laughs) So it's, it's a really, really fascinating book. We never learn the gender and we never learn the name of the narrator. But what's so incredible about this book is that the first person 
narrative is so well done. You feel so close to the narrator. You feel like you're sitting at their elbow. There's a feeling of real intimacy. So when you get to about three quarters of the way through the novella, and the narrator says, this is 20 years after the, the main events of the book, that their life has changed because they fell in love with somebody much younger who was neither the gender nor the age that they would have expected. And it's only when you get to that point that you say, oh my God, we don't know this person's name. We don't know this person's age. We don't know this person's gender. This this narrator who we've spent a hundred pages with and we think we know so well, we really know nothing about. And we're left to wonder. It's never revealed. Has this person... Uh, after you know a lifetime thinking that they were heterosexual, fallen in love with someone of their own gender, or is it the reverse? Are we dealing with a man, a woman? It's so unclear. And yet that feeling of intimacy remains. And what that says about us as the reader is almost as interesting as what it says about the book. I found this book entirely by accident. I bought a copy when I was living in Cairo and books in English were fairly expensive and fairly scarce. So when I would go to an English language bookstore, it really forced me to broaden my tastes and my reading material because I was limited by what was there. I couldn't order things off of Amazon. I I couldn't go to Books A Million. I couldn't go to the bookstore across town. It was really whatever the selection was at that bookstore and that was it. And so The Hunters was something that I picked up on a whim at an English language bookstore in downtown Cairo. And I read the back copy and I thought, you know what, this isn't something that I would normally read, but you know what, I've I've kind of combed through the rest of the bookstore and, and this is the most intriguing thing that I've found. And I took it home and I read it, I think, overnight. (laughs) It's one of those things that even though a lot of the themes are quite heavy, reads very fast because the narration is so rich and restrained at the same time. The language is so precise. The story goes at quite a clip. And I was really blown away. And I seem to remember, this was maybe, gosh, 15 years ago, that as soon as I read it, I put it down and then a couple of days later, picked it up and reread it all over again. I feel like having read this book now, oh gosh, probably three or four times all the way through, uh, that there's, there's really something to be said for restraint in the narrative. I think we assume a lot as writers that the readers are going to ask certain questions when the fact of the matter is that if you build up the world well, whether it's uh, something very real, set in the real world as The Hunters is, or it's high fantasy or anything in between, if you set that world up appropriately, you can get away with concealing a great deal and letting the reader fill in whatever they see or whatever pops into their head. And you can use that. That, that's, That's really a tool that can pay off down the line in the story when you need to add a twist and you realize that, oh, well, you know, I haven't said X, Y, or Z, or, or I've, I've kept this a secret from the reader, but they probably haven't realized it yet. And then you can go back in and, and drop something in that feels really genius <laughs> because you've read the story. Well, you know, you, you've, you've kind of got a read on 
what you've said, what you haven't said, and you've allowed the reader to do quite a bit of work in, in filling in the details. The twist in The Hunters caught me so completely off guard that I, I kind of took a step back and, and reassessed myself as a reader. <laughs> and it's so fun when you get a book that, that does something like that for you, that really changes your reading experience and the way that you process a story and reminds you that you're maybe not as smart as you thought you were. And it's so rare. And when it happens, it's, it's just so much fun. And The Hunters really was one of those books for me. I'm really glad that at the time I picked up The Hunters, my choices were somewhat limited because I think if I had been left to my own devices and had a whole giant Barnes and Noble or, or you know, like a really well-stocked indie bookstore or library or Amazon at my disposal, I would never have thought to pick up this book. And it, it really says something about stretching yourself, about not limiting yourself to what you think you like, but opening yourself up to books that you might not pick up normally, but which could really be a turning point for you as a reader. And you realize that your tastes are much more omnivorous than you thought. So I'm really grateful that uh, <laughs> I was in a situation where my choices were somewhat limited because I think not just in the case of Claire Massoud and the Hunters, but uh, there were there were a lot of books that I read during that period that I would not have picked up had I had access to books that uh, were part of my normal reading diet, which runs a little bit more mainstream and uh, skews a little bit more sci-fi fantasy and, <laughs> and genre. So I'm I'm really happy that that was just one of those wonderful coincidences that can happen in your reading life where you pick something up and it kind of changes who you are as a reader. I have recommended it to others. When people say that they liked Girl on a Train or Gone Girl or something from that genre, I will immediately say, well, you will love The Hunters. Pick it up. It's a bit more literary. It's a bit more textured. It's a bit more challenging. And the reward is just incredible. And I also recommend it to people who say, what are some good novellas? It's one of those things that doesn't quite fit into one category or another in terms of what genre it is or, or what you would call it. It's, it's not quite a mystery. It's, it's not quite a thriller. Uh, it, it is quite literary. So it doesn't fit in terms of genre into one box really neatly. Thanks again to G. Willow Wilson for joining us and recommending The Hunters by Claire Massoud. Her new novel, The Bird King, published by Grove Press, is now available wherever books are sold. And you can follow Wilson on Twitter at G. Willow Wilson. This episode of Recommended is sponsored by Chandel, a natural warrior. Chandel, a natural warrior, is a realistic fantasy adventure story told in an unusual and captivating style with wit and humor. The two main characters, Jamie Chen and Robin Dell, are normal young people except for one thing. Jamie can communicate with plants, and Robin can talk with insects. Their powers come together and form Chen Del, a unique superhero with the mission of saving the Earth from its enemies. Chen Del, a natural warrior, is the first book in the Chen Del series. It follows the lives of Jamie and Robin, two people from different worlds who have more alike than they realize. They each have abilities to communicate with and direct the natural world. They are perfect for each other, maybe too perfect. They believe their lives are mapped out until fate gives them a fantastic adventure and a transformative mission. Using heightened powers, they fight the forces behind Eocide to save the Earth, one battle at a time. This is the first young adult title by author Leslie Landis. 
Chendel, a natural warrior, is now available for Kindle and paperback. Explore the story and buy the book at chendel.com. Finally, nature has a hero. Zen Cho is the author of the short story collection Spirits Abroad and two historical fantasy novels, Sorcerer to the Crown and The True Queen. She is a winner of the Crawford Fantasy Award and the British Fantasy Award for Best Newcomer and a finalist for the Locust Award for Best First Novel and the Campbell Award for Best New Writer. She was born and raised in Malaysia, resides in the UK, and lives in a notional space between the two. The True Queen, which takes place two years after the events of Sorcerer to the Crown, follows a young woman with no memories of her past, who finds herself embroiled in dangerous politics in England and the land of the Fae. My name is Zen Cho, and Villette by Charlotte Bronte is my recommended. So Villette follows the fortunes of Lucy Snow, who is not unlike Jane Eyre from Bronte's most famous novel. Um, she's, you know, sort of mean, pure, poor, obscure young woman, um, English woman. And she has been left alone in the world due to circumstances she, she doesn't go into a huge amount of detail um, into. And she ends up going to Villette, um, which is a fictional Belgian city, and she becomes a teacher there um, at a school. And the story is just all about her kind of experiences there, the people she meets, um, and eventually, you know, the person she falls in love with. And it follows quite closely Charlotte Bronte's experiences teaching in Belgium herself. I grew up in Malaysia, and I didn't have any libraries nearby, really. All the, all the kind of decent libraries were about an hour's drive away. Um, and as a child, I didn't drive. <laughs> and, um, and also I was allowed to go, I was taken to a bookshop about once a week and allowed to buy one book. So what it meant was that I wasn't perpetually in kind of reading, um, reading deprived, you know, I had, I had very little reading material that could keep up with the, my, my reading speed. And there were also weren't, there wasn't a huge selection of books in, in Malaysian bookshops and that the situation's improved since then. But at the time that I was a child, you know, for example, there are very few Malaysian authors on the shelves, you know, it's exclusively kind of um, British and American authors. I, I made a very good discovery as a child. And I think I must've been around, around 10 years old when I started reading my way through these. And the discovery was the Penguin Popular Classics. And I don't know if you've ever seen these. They're sort of um, beige mass mar- market paperbacks. They were The great thing about them was that they were very cheap. So they're 580 ringgit, which is about um, a pound, um, a British pound. Jane Eyre, for example, provides a lot of reading material for 580 when you're only allowed to go to the bookshop once a week. So when I found these, I just started reading through them. So, I, you know, I read Dickens, I read um, Austen, I read um, George Eliot, I read, and obviously Bronte, the Brontes. I read Jane Eyre first and then just went through what else I could find by her. Um, and she, she hadn't, she hadn't, published all that much, three novels mainly. So Villette was the, was the next thing. And I, I have to say, um, although Jane Eyre is more famous, um, Villette's definitely my favourite of, um, of the three. I think it's just, it's, it's just a really fascinating book. I can't think of anything that's quite like it. And I think part of the reason is because Lucy Snow, the main character, and it's, it's written in first person like Jane Eyre, is um, quite a weird person. I, you know, Jane Eyre is pretty weird. Uh, but Lucy Snow is even weirder. And given that when you sort of think about it, you know, each of the protagonists probably followed Charlotte Bronte fairly closely. It sort of makes you think, wonder what sort of person she was. Lucy Snow is a really fascinating protagonist because one thing about her is that she 
Well, firstly, she's incredibly lonely. She's very, um, she's a person who's kind of been left alone in the world. She doesn't really have any family that she tells you about. She doesn't seem to really have any close friends. Um, and she's um, set herself up as a kind of observer. You know, she's, she's conscious that she has no money. She has no family. She's somebody who's very insignificant in kind of Victorian society. And so what she does for a lot of the book is observe other people and kind of try to decide whether to keep them at a distance or allow them to affect her. And, and one theme that keeps coming up is they, they tend to affect her more than she thinks they, than she affects them because you know they've got their own lives and so on she's sort of a peripheral person in, in in their life and whereas she doesn't really have anyone in her life so she's kind of you know getting really emotionally invested in all these people and um if you knew somebody like that in real life you might sit her down and say you know you're getting over involved in these um people's lives and they just don't really they don't really care about you <laughs> it's, it's getting a bit creepy frankly but it's it's really fascinating to read about in the novel form and another thing about her but actually the thing that most critics i think foreground is um is that she doesn't tell the reader the full story so she she's one of those unreliable narrators and so i think that's part of the fascination of book that you're kind of following you know the narration of this person who's kind of uncomfortably honest about all her weird feelings and kind of you know they're all very intense feelings you know lots of lots of feelings that like jade Eyre. but at the same time she's kind of not telling you the full story she kind of come you know sort of casually says later it's like, oh BT dubs, like I knew that person, you know, that I mentioned in chapter three, and he was the guy that I knew as a, as a kid. You're like, why, Lucy, why didn't you tell us that? It's a book that I've chosen as a reader rather than a writer, because I was thinking, you know, what, what would I say about Rilla as a writer? I think <laughs> what I say is very difficult to to draw direct inspiration from. And I'm, I'm somebody who actually kind of tends to, in writing things, I tend to remix what I've read. The Sorcerer to the Crown, which is my first novel, um, draws very heavily, for example, in Regency romances, P.G. Woodhouse, you know, all the kind of British comedy that I read um, as a child. And I actually tried to remix Villette. So I, I tried to write uh, once a space opera version of Villette, but set in a kind of a cultural setting inspired by the classical maritime kingdoms of Southeast Asia, which sounds kind of mad, but I sort of thought, oh, right, you know, I can see how this is going to work. And there were going to be sort of bioengineered courtesans and, you know, robots and all sorts. Um, and I just couldn't, I couldn't really make it work. And I keep going back to it, I think, in a way, because I haven't really worked out why it, it exerts this power over me. But it is, it is really fascinating. It's just really... Um, and, and so immersive, it's incredibly immersive. I should say as well that Lucy Snow is not a very attractive person in lots of ways. So she's, re- she's like super racist against Flemish. Um, and like maybe racist isn't the, the right word because they're all white. But at the same time, she, she does describe them in this kind of quite racialized way, which is, is frankly very off-putting for a modern reader. But at the same time, you know, I think because, because you inhabit her point of view so strongly, because she kind of conveys that, she manages to kind of draw you in. I don't personally find it off-putting. She's also really, really anti-Roman Catholic. And uh, I suspect, and probably part of the reason why I don't find it so off-putting that I don't, I dislike the book is because these, um, these kind of discriminations, as it were, seem kind of almost visible to a modern reader. You're kind of like, all oh, right, they're Catholic, so what? She's living at a time where, um, you know, the British self-identity is very strongly shaped by the fact that Britain is a Protestant country, you know, and as distinct from the continental countries, which, which are Catholic. And you can definitely see that in the, the kind of texture of the work. So one of the major conflicts later on, she falls in love with a, um, a French teacher at the school, uh, Monsieur Paul Emmanuel. And uh, one of the conflicts is that he's Catholic and he's Roman Catholic, you know, and she's Protestant. And that's something that she actually kind of, she kind of struggles with herself. But she ends up sort of saying, oh yeah, well, Catholicism is terrible, but he's great. So, you know, he kind of transcends Catholicism, which, uh, yeah, it's an interesting point of view. 
I don't actually recommend it all that often because I think I think it, you know it needs a particular reader. You know, everyone's got such a huge kind of to read list nowadays. Of, I mean, everyone who's interested in reading. If you're not interested in reading, you're very unlikely to take on you know an extremely long Victorian novel about a woman working in written, frankly, in not the not Bronte's most accessible style. Um, lots of the dialogue is in French, which, you know, lots of the dialogue to this day I don't understand because <laughs> I don't speak French. Um, and it's one of those, you know, Victorian tom- tomes, you know. And, and you've got this character who's not immediately sympathetic. I just, so I don't, I don't recommend it often. But it's, it's one of those books where, you know, when you meet a fellow fan, you're like, oh, it's so great. Isn't it so great? And you, you know, it's kind of, that kind of creates a bond between you. It's like, right, yeah, you, you too are a fan of Charlotte Bronte's second most famous novel. Nowadays, I do try to read a wider range of authors. I do try to read a wider range of um, things. I, I, I tend to read a lot of um, Malaysi- what you might call Malaysiana, so a lot of Malaysian history. I read a lot of um, fair amount of nonfiction. I try to, I try to read more sort of um, POC writers, for example. So Villette's kind of unusual um, in, in, my, in my current reading, you know, in, in sort of on almost every axis, except it is all about kind of a woman's interior life and her, you know, her, her inner life. And, and that's something that fascinates me. So the kind of subgenre I would save, <laughs> if for some reason, every genre of books was going to be set in fire, except like one genre that I chose. And it had to be an incredibly specific subgenre. The one I'd save would be books by women. And they, they are mostly British women in the kind of interwar period, early 20th century, rather. Um, and about women's inner lives. And I think they used to, these used to be called like middle-brow middle fiction. Publishers like Persephone Books, uh, Virago, have done lots and lots of them. And sort of by authors who may have been bestsellers at their time, but have been mostly forgotten and, not, and aren't super well respected critically. Um, and, and I think partly because they were women writing about sort of womany things like marriage, childbirth. Uh, what a woman felt kind of being at home all day and so on. And I, I just love that kind of book. And um, so I suppose Villette is kind of an example of that, although she, she doesn't lead a conventional life by any means. Thanks again to Zen Cho for joining us and recommending Villette by Charlotte Bronte. Her new novel, The True Queen, published by Ace, is now available wherever books are sold. And you can find out more about her at zencho.org. Thanks again to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. If you like what you heard, please do take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear your feedback and it helps other folks to find the show. You can find show notes at bookriot.com slash recommended and you can email us at recommended at bookriot.com. <laughs>